go out to the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Prepare me the kind of tasty food I like and bring, the, bring it to me to eat so that I may give you my blessing before I die. Now Rebecca was listening as Isaac spoke to his son Esau. When Esau left for the open country to hunt game and bring it back, Rebecca said to her son Jacob, look, I overheard your father say to your brother Esau, bring me some game and prepare me some tasty food to eat so, so that I may give you my blessing in the presence of the Lord before I die. Now, my son, listen carefully and do what I tell you. Go out to the flock and bring me two choice young gods so I can prepare some tasty food for your father, just the way he likes it. Then take it to your father to eat so that he may give you his blessing before he dies. Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, but my brother Esau is a hairy man while I have smooth skin. What if my father touches me? I would appear to be tricking him and would bring down a curse on myself rather than a blessing. His mother said to him, my son, let the curse fall on me. Just do what I say. Go and get them for me. So he went and got them and brought them to his mother. And she prepared some tasty food just the way his father liked it. Then Rebekah took the best clothes of Esau, her older brother, her older son, I'm sorry, her older son, which she had in the house and put them in her younger son, Jacob. She also covered his hands and the smooth part of his neck with, goat, with the goat skin. Then she handed to her son Jacob the tasty food and the bread she had made. He went to his father and said, my father, yes, my son, he answered. Who is it? Jacob said to his father, I, I, am your, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. Isaac said to his son, How did you find it so quickly, my son? The Lord your God gave me success, he replied. Then Isaac said to Jacob, come near so I can touch you, my son, to know whether you really are my son Esau or not. Jacob went close to his father Isaac, who touched him and said, the voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him for his hands were hairy like those of his brother Esau. So he, pro he, pro he proceeded to bless him. Are you really my, my son Esau? 
he asked. I am, he replied. Then he said, my son, bring me some of your game to eat so that I may give you my blessing. Jacob brought it to him and he ate, and he brought some wine and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, come here, my son, and kiss me. So he went to, to him and kissed him. When Isaac caught the smell of his clothes, he, he blessed him and said, Ha, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you heaven's dew and earth richness and abundance of grain and new wine. May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers, and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed, and those who bless you be blessed. After Isaac finished blessing him, and Jacob had carefully left his father's presence, his brother Esau came in from hunting. He too prepared some tasty food and brought it to his father. Then he said to him, my father, please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. His father Isaac asked him, who are you? I am your son, he answered. Your firstborn Esau. Isaac trembled violently and said, who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? I ate it just before you came, and I blessed him, and indeed he will be blessed. Then Esau, when Esau heard his father's words, he burst out with a loud and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, me too, my father. But he said, Your, your brother came deceitfully and took your blessing. Esau said, isn't it he rightly named Jacob? This is the second time he has taken advantage of me. He took my birthright, and now he's taken my blessing. Then he asked, haven't you reserved any blessing for me? Isaac answered Esau, I have made him Lord over you and have made all his relatives his servants, and I have sustained him with grain and new wine. So what can I possibly do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, do you have only one blessing, my father? Bless me too, my father. Then Esau wept aloud. <laughs> Creepy little monkey. You stop following me? <laughs> who are you? The question is, who are you? I thought I knew. Now I'm not so sure. Well, I know who you are. Shh, come here. It's a secret. Enough already. What is that supposed to mean, anyway? It means you're a baboon. And I'm not. <laughs> I think you're a little confused. Wrong. 
I'm not the one who's confused. You don't even know who you are. Oh, and I suppose you know. Sure do. Don't move faster, boy. Bye. Hey, wait. You know my father? Correction, I know your father. I hate to tell you this, but he died a long time ago. Nope, wrong again. <laughs> He's alive. I'll show him to you. You follow old Rafiki, he knows the way. Come on. That's not my father. It's just my reflection. No. Look You see, he lives in Well, between the worship and the scripture reading, I feel like I've already been at church this morning. How about you guys? I, uh, Melanie did a great job, and Panda, I appreciate you reading my scripture for me, and Patty did our metaphor down here for us. I appreciate her doing that. She, uh, I just gave her an idea, and she ran with it. I didn't tell her what to do. Just, uh, I'm always overwhelmed at the amount of talent that we have within our church here, and uh, just a small number of people. I mean, you look at the Churches are so much larger than us. I have, you know, so many more people. You expect them to have talent. But sometimes in small congregations, we, we miss that. And we overlook it. And I'm appreciative 
of that. So thank you guys. If you didn't get a handout this morning, they're back there filling a blank. They're back there on the back um, by the offering plates. You can grab those just to kind of help you follow along a little bit. But as I, as I prepared for my sermon, and I have a little bit more time to prepare than what Ryan often has in a week-to-week thing, but, and uh, that's both a blessing and a curse because it can become a monstrosity, and you have to figure out what you want to cut, right? So know that as I go through it this morning, there's a lot more left on the cutting room floor than what I have on here. Thanks be to God, right? <laughs> But, uh, you know, but as I prepared for it, and I began to think, and God, I, I wanted to go one particular direction, and, and God just kept leading me back to identity. And I began to read the scripture, and I was drawn to that story of Jacob and Esau that, that Panda read for us this morning. And, and of course, you know, it, it begins way back in, in, you know, chapter 23, 24, and, uh, and we'll walk through that a little bit this morning, but the crux of it is is what Pounder read this morning, but I was struck how how often these elements are found in other areas of society. Even Disney gets it. Uh, start, you know, from Star Wars from and Darth Vader being Luke, I'm your father, to to Mufasa. Disney gets the importance of identity. In the case of Simba, he's believed a lie that he'll never be good enough. He can never be forgiven, so he rejects his identity. He leaves his home and he goes into exile, but deep down he knows he's meant for more. The irony is that it's in exile that that Simba actually recognized his father's image within him. And only by looking deeper did he actually realize, is he able to realize his purpose. As I watched that, I was reminded too of of another story from the Bible, another narrative there from Adam and Eve from creation, where they had everything, literally everything that anybody could ever want, and the enemy comes to them and feeds Eve a lie, and then Adam believes the lie, and as a result, they reject their identity, and they too end up in exile. And that thunderous lie continues its reverberations today. It shakes the foundations of creation. We see it. We hear its echoes throughout the scripture from Cain and Abel to the flood to the Tower of Babel. But, but God continues pursuing us. God continually chooses more people to set apart and say, please listen, this is who you are. But they always fail because they always mistake the, the idea that somehow we can go it alone. But alone, we're not enough. We'll always be lacking. Perhaps in the midst of this chaos, there's a, a brief foreshadowing of hope when God comes to Abram. You remember the story. We, we can't help but compare this narrative to the, to the narrative that immediately precedes it in the Tower of Babel, right? They had gathered together to, to form their own identity, to build a name for themselves. And, and then you, you hear it all comes crashing down. And in the midst of all this chaos, it's as if there's this storm, this Category 6 hurricane continues to intensify throughout the earth, and all this chaos reigns, and it's as if God steps into the midst of it and, and, and sees this childless, homeless couple who is completely helpless. And in the midst of this storm, God steps in and he says, peace be still. God promises them a child, and and to make Abram a great nation. 
This visit from God marks them. And now they have a new identity in their relationship with God. Abraham, father of many nations. Sarah's name is not just beautiful, but now princes of all. What a contrast. What a contrast between Adam and Eve after the fall when, when Adam almost out of spite turns to, to the woman and takes dominion over her and then names her Eve, mother of all, almost as if he's reduced her simply her function as his wife. Compare that to God's renaming of Sarai to Sarah, not just beautiful, but princess of all. A whole new identity, a whole new purpose in relationship, marked in your relationship with him. Abraham's not only marked with a new identity, but as a symbol and reminder of the covenant with God had cut with him, he and all his children and even all the males in his household, servants, whether they're related to him or not, if they're connected to Abraham, they also will bear this mark. They will have their foreskin cut. And so we see that this, this theme through, throughout the, the, the scriptures there that the people of Yahweh are to be a unique, identifiable people even in the midst of a chaotic earth. Most notable, we, we read Simon becomes Peter and Saul becomes Paul. And once more, these encounters with the living God profoundly changes the calculus of chaos. Alone they are not enough, but with God all things are possible. But for now, the chaos continues. Isaac, the fulfillment of God's covenant with Abraham, has married Rebekah. They have twins, Jacob and Esau. But from the birth, there are hints of trouble. Jacob is born holding the heel of, of Harry, uh, I mean Esau. <laughs> you know the story. Esau comes in from hunting. He's hungry, and, and Jacob has some good food cooking, and he asked Jacob for some food. And, of course, Jacob, being the typical sibling, says, what's in it for me? Right? I see that play out in my family. <laughs> Already we hear the echoes of the familiar lies from the past. Deception and desire. Esau's desire gets the best of him, and he bargains away his birthright. We can only guess why Esau took his birthright for granted. But we might also do a little introspection and reflection and ask ourselves the same question. We don't have to review the entire story. Pounder read it for us. But we know it ends with Jacob deceiving Isaac and he becomes the recipient of the blessing meant for Esau. The, the narrative's clear. Chaos has returned with a vengeance. It seems they've mistaken God's blessing as a source of their identity as the people of covenant. The image of God is still blurry even after Abraham. The, the relationship with the Father was, has simply become something to be manipulated as a means to the end of receiving the blessing instead of the relationship with the Father resulting in a blessing. But even in the midst of this, there's still good news. God continues his pursuit. The story continues. But do we make the same mistake? Do we mistake the blessings of God as a source of our life? Do we mistake, do we try to manipulate relationship with the Father just so we can one day get the blessing of heaven? 
or even a blessing on earth? You know, the reality is anything can shape our identity, and it will. I was reading just the other day an article. It just It's amazing how these some things come across your desk. But the title of it was The Surprising Power of Daily Rituals. Now, within the article, it's a very long article, but I'll spare you the whole, all of it. But, but the primary point was that they had found these people, these fishermen, this tribe of fishermen in Papua New Guinea. And they would carefully paint their canoes with black, red, and white paint. And they'd chant spells over them as they did. And the vessel would be struck with wooden sticks and the bows stained with red oak tree. And, and crew members would adorn their arms with shells. They later observed that deep sea fishermen in the United States and even the UK had their own rituals. I remember growing up, I grew up in a family of fishermen and, and, fishermen, and they had their own little things, that preparations they called them, in pre, in, as they would do for their fishing and hunting. The reality, in retrospect, were just rituals. I was watching the Bama game back when they were good and they were playing Ole Miss. And <laughs> one of the commentators said, they were talking about how good Alabama was. And one of them said, do you know that, that in a week's time, Alabama runs in excess of 450 plays practice? Uh, now, to give you an idea, I read just, the, uh, just yesterday, out of, 14 play, out of 14 games, the NFL will run in excess of maybe 800 plays. Out of 14 games, Bama in one week will run 450. Why do they do that? Because... Saban recognizes that when they get out there to play the game, that the way they play has to come from inside. It has to be, it has the way they practice influences who they are on the field. You repeat wedding vows to each other. We aren't going to be doing this before long. We do that because they shape us. And they shape us in relationship with each other, but also that relationship in the context of God. Because we recognize that as the two become one, that that relationship must also be in God. That, that alone we are not enough. That even with, our, with our, our wives, even with our husbands, we're not enough without the Father. My nephew Alex has begun taking flying lessons, much to my my sister's chagrin. He wants to become a commercial pilot. And so when he first began, my sister gave him a vial of anointing oil to take with him whenever he, before he flies. Does he do it? I don't know. Does it shape him? Absolutely. Whether it's fishermen paying a boat to protect against the high seas, a hunter's ritual, a sports team with their practices, or a mother giving her son anointing oil before he flies. All of those things shape our identity. God's original design all the way back to the garden was for our identity to be shaped in relationship with him. But like Esau, I think the church has perhaps taken that for granted. And we wonder why we're arguing over the definition of male and female. What if the mark of the beast were the mark left by the absence of the people of God as a testimony to the empire, to the world? Just an interesting side note that number 666 in Revelation was John's way of saying that the worship of the emperor and the emperor himself who claimed to be God was not enough. Our identities today seem to be more shaped by a hallmark 
than God. As we celebrate Halloween, but we completely forget about All Saints Day. We celebrate Christmas with our families, but what of Advent? Most have no concept that Christmas in the Christian calendar is actually 12 days. Not just December the 25th. We celebrate Easter, but what of the ascension? Our calendar, our time, and how we live it and spend it, it shapes us. But you know what? The enemy is aggressively pursuing our children's identity. And he's starting young. When I was growing up, and Melanie and I were attending church camp, the boys were on one side, and the girls were on the other. Street. Street separated us. Never the two shall meet. At least not on each other's side. <laughs> we can meet in the street. We can meet in the chapel. We can meet in the cafeteria. The biggest concern that my mom had when she was a camp counselor was Melanie sneaking out at night and torturing the boys or running the NYI president's boxers up the flagpole. <laughs> She'd enjoy that. <laughs> Today, camp counselors are trying to navigate same-sex, bisexual, and other LGBTQ issues in the lives of our young people. Youth pastors get a bad rap. Give them a little bit of mercy. They're dealing with your kids, our kids. <laughs> TikTok is doing more to shape the identity of our kids, even in Christian homes and the local church, and not in a good way. Uh, you don't have to look hard to find the research on this. The reality is that social media probably knows more about our kids than we do. Are we surprised with the rise of social media that there's an identity crisis among our children? And that teen suicide is also a pandemic that's threatening the lives of people? It's not exempt either. Our occupation can form our identity. Being a pastor is a huge, huge identity. We're being told that wealth, race, position, achievement, the list goes on. These are the things that will shape you, anything but God. The result is a journey of inadequacy. I, I've heard it from Christians. I've heard it from young and old. I've heard it from wildly successful people to barely, people barely eking out an existence. I'm never enough. We feel alone and isolated as, as if we were the only ones on earth that ever struggles with a particular issue. And it affects our churches. When people leave a church nine times out of ten, if they go somewhere else, I used to have people that come to me when I was planting a church and say, hey, uh, I hear you're planting a church. Yeah, I'd love to be a part of it. And I'll say, well, well, how long have you been attending your other church? Oh, a couple of years. Well, why are you leaving? Well, we just feel God leading us over here. Well, why would God lead you away from there to over here? Nine times out of ten, there's some kind of conflict. And most of the time, if that conflict goes from there, it will end up at here. <laughs> we're running away from the monster inside of ourselves because we're seeking something more than God. I don't think I have told you anything you don't already know, but it still leaves us with two questions today. The first one is, what does it mean to have a Christian identity? And the second is, you told us all these issues, but how do we solve the problem? 
To have a Christian identity means that we have a profound understanding that we were created in the image of the Father. Creation is good. We are the climax of that creation. In other words, in God's divine symphony of creation, we are the crescendo. It was common for kings and rulers to place images of themselves in areas of the territory in which they had conquered. But God, Yahweh, He comes and He creates living, breathing images of Himself. An image or a likeness is representative of something beyond itself. And in our case, we're the reflection of God. Unlike lifeless images, we are given dominion. This means that we're extensions of God's rule and reign over the whole of God's creation. We don't serve a passive purpose. We don't have a passive existence within, within creation We are the ones who are supposed to care for it. We're the ones that are supposed to care for it. We are a sacrament. Jesus used the body of, uh, of the, the language of the body as a sacrament at the Last Supper. The Eucharist is a sacrament. Baptism is a sacrament. Marriage is a sacrament. In the third century, the church coined that word sacrament. So what does it mean? Well, it's a Latin. They combine two words here, sacrament for holy, and then a Greek word mysterion for mystery. Now, as Wesleyans, we'll have to get too deep in theology today, but as Wesleyans, we recognize the meaning and, and scope of the word sacrament and see sacrament not only as an oath of loyalty, but also as a pointer to a holy mystery. We are a means of God's grace in the world, even in the empire. We are holy. Holy doesn't mean we're just ethical and moral people. We are, but, but it's so much more than that. This, coin, this, this term was coined as a description of God himself. It means holy other, completely different, indescribable, like nothing else. Having no equal. As his chosen, we are sanctified. We are set apart by God, for God, as a means of grace to all creation. I've heard it said this way, we were blessed to be a blessing. We are loved. John 13, 35 says, you will love your love for one another your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Once more, I'm reminded of a, of a line from Princess Bride. You guys know that movie. It has, I do not think that word means what you think it means. <laughs> Timothy Tennant, president of Asbury Theological Seminary, says our current theology of love is too nebulous. Bonhoeffer spoke of cheap grace. I wonder if we have entered an age of bleak love. In other words, loving with the love of God doesn't mean everything and anything goes. Emily Kegler wrote an article entitled, Bruised and Blessed by Scripture. She had she'd long struggled to reconcile her sexuality with Scripture. And after a long journey, concluded that Scripture had nothing to say about same-gender relationships. Eventually, she became dissatisfied with that answer. 
One day she heard Lauren Winter from Duke, Duke Divinity School ask the question, one of our job as preachers is just to love the scriptures in public. It was after studying the story of Jacob and wrestling with the angel for a blessing after an all-night-long struggle that left him with a limp that she determined that she would get the blessing from scriptures even if it left her with a lifelong limp. Sometimes love means helping others see the path they are on will eventually lead to their death if they don't repent. We are missional. We're promised, the promised land was, was promised as a means of God's provision and be a blessing to Abraham. His testimony would be a testimony to the nation. God can be trusted to hold up his end of the bargain even if we don't. Only God was capable of taking a homeless and fertile couple and giving them eternal life and a place to live. But before Abraham, Abraham could pursue the promised land, he had to leave home. We too must leave home. We can, we can leave the safety of home because unlike other gods who had to be wheeled around on a cart, our God, our Lord needs no such assistance. Our Lord has promised to be with us just as he was with Abraham and the Israelites in the desert. The Bible narrative reminds us not only that God intends to be the source of our glory and blessing, but that we are scattered and sent to the ends of the earth. But not alone, because alone we're not enough. How can we be a means of grace to the world if, if we stay huddled in home, at home in comfort? Jesus' last words before he ascended to the Father was, Go into all the world and spread the good news and make disciples. The final question today is, how are we faithfully, how do we, how are we to faithfully commit to be the image of God to all the world? When chaos is still threatening our very lives. There's still a lot of noise that threatens to drown out the voice of God. Nobody denies that. It might surprise you though that, that we can look no further than Leviticus and Deuteronomy for clues as to how we live out this existence. How we're to be faithful in the midst of the noise. In the midst of the chaos. You see the law was given to the people of God as a blessing. The Jews saw it as such. It, it's one reason they revolted against Jesus as being Messiah because they, they saw him as threatening one of the very foundations of their existence. Their identity had been shaped as they came through the desert. Their identity had been shaped by God and the law was given to them in the midst of this chaos as that blessing. And so Jesus comes into the midst of this and he says, I'm not here to replace law. I'm the fulfillment of the law. Now, I'll confess, as one who grew up in a church of the Nazarene that was very legalistic, that taught us to define ourselves by what we don't do instead of what we do do, or versus who we are in Christ, I bristle a little bit when I hear about the law. I bristle when I think that somehow or another this is, this is a means of grace to me. And to peep God. But here's the reality is, is I've discovered that we need boundaries to protect us. 
If we're to be sanctified, to be set apart, there has to be something different about the way we live, the way the things that shape us versus the way those who do not identify as the people of the covenant live. So you understand the contrasting images here is the empire, the world, versus Christ. Alone versus God with us. One of the multiple purposes of the law was to help the people survive. Don't touch dead things or blood. Stay away from sick people and sick animals. Now today, these are no-brainers for us, right? To them, don't eat certain animals because, well, they'll kill you. <laughs> we know these things today because we have science to back us up. They didn't have Dr. Fauci, okay? <laughs> Sorry. Another part of the, another purpose of the law was to set up the festivals, the rituals, and other practices. He was creating your calendar. As I, as I said before, the way we spend our time shapes our lives. Think about it. If we spend our time scrolling through social media, listening to the news, we have the noise of the empire in our ear 24-7. What if instead of scrolling social media, we just put on Scripture and listen to it? Or scroll through Scriptures? It's hard to get families in church, especially with, with children, because they're playing sports instead of coming to church, and sports takes priorities. I, I'm having to have these conversations with my kids now as, as they find girlfriends and boyfriends. And, and I, the first question I ask is, do they go to church somewhere? Well, they're busy with sports. They play softball on Sunday, or they do this on Sunday, or they do this on Wednesday. And my answer is always, son, they're not being shaped by the church. They're being shaped by something other than the church. You may not marry this person. But you might. And when you grow up, and their identity has been formed by this, and you've been formed by God, there's going to be a conflict there. There's an old book by Dallas Willard called The Spirit of the Disciplines. It explores, explores the spiritual practices that we engage in today and help shape us and remind us of who we are. And these disciplines remind us that we reflect the image of God by reflecting the character of Christ. Things like solitude and silence, prayer, simple and sacrificial living, meditation on God's word, and sacrifice and service to others were all the disciplines of Jesus. The practice of these disciplines is how God guides us into constant interaction with his kingdom. We've got a word for that. It's called discipleship. Susanna Wesley, she's the mother to John and Calvin, uh, excuse me, John and not Calvin, John and Charles Wesley. Calvin's a different person. <laughs> she has a specific method that she used with her sons. She was a strict Puritan Sabbatarian. Uh, it's just a fancy way of saying that, that she saw Sunday, the Sabbath, as a key ingredient to shaping the identity a key observance of the faith. And 
all the Wesley children were trained by this, this group catechesis, yet each child was treated as an individual. Each one had a, a regular evening in, the, in the, the week to spend time alone with Susanna. John's was, was on Thursday. You get this. It, it's not either or. We like to, we like to say, well, they're either going to be formed by God or they're going to be formed by the world. We're either going to be this or that. And this, this dualistic thing is we either you know, give our whole identity to, to God, but, but we lose ourselves. And, and that's not what he's saying at all. It's like, I make you better. I don't replace who you are. I simply enhance you, you are, because everything you do is now filtered through me, through the lens of my identity, and that shapes who you are in that way, but you're still going to have your own personality. You're still going to be, well, I won't reveal that, but <laughs> later, as John, and he understood, let me go back to this, like she, it was clear that she meant for this, not to shape their lives just, just on Sundays, not just on a Sabbath, or not just when she was along with them, but in every aspect of their lives. Later, as, as John would write and preach his theology, his brother Charles wrote hymns for people to sing the theology. Singing has an enormous formational force in shaping our identity. When I was growing up, Petra, one of the rock bands of the time, had a song called Garbage In, Garbage Out. Enough said. How are we to be expected to be the image bearers of, of Jesus, of God, in the midst of chaos? The same way Jesus was, as the religious elite sought to discredit, trap, and diminish, and finally crucify him. On the cross, we see the, we see the climax of, of his relationship with the Lord when he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. We are chosen by the creator of the heavens and the earth. God created us and chose to have a personal relationship with us. He loved us so much that he sent his son to die for us. You've heard these things. He chose you and I from the beginning. But here's something you may not know. There are thousands of gods out there. And each one of them, each one of them demand a gift. There were thousands of gods in the Old Testament, and they all demanded a gift that, that ranged from crops to goats to your firstborn son. If you wanted to win a battle, you sacrificed your son. But God chose us and gives us the gift of his one and only son. You get the contrast there. Other gods demand gifts. Our God gives gifts. Other gods take life. Our God gives life. Because of Jesus' sacrifice, we, we are enough. There's nothing we have to do to earn God's favor. There's no bargain we must strike with God or for the blessing of abundant life. We don't have to manipulate Him in any way. As the old hymn says, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I'm reminded of the words of God in Deuteronomy 30, 
verses 19 through 20. He says, I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, I beg you, choose life that both you and your descendants may thrive, that you may love the Lord your God, and that he who may o- obey his voice, and that you may cling to him, for he is your life and the length of your days, and that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. As you stand this morning and prepare to receive a blessing as you leave, and take this with you as you go. Remember, we hold our hands out because we're giving away our power. The idea that somehow we have to hoard power and keep it amongst ourselves, that's a lie of the empire. That's saying that, that God's not enough, that, that we can do it ourselves, and so we have to amass everything we can, and God is so big, we have to amass all these other things to, to replace Him, and it's still not enough. So today, I send you with this blessing. May the God of the covenant, who sets before you life and death, shape you and all whom you love in His image. May his word bruise and bless you so that you will always remember who you are. May you know that because he gave the gift of his only son, you are enough. Amen.